Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Well, hello and good day. We are going to talk gardening for the next hour. If you would like to give us a call and talk gardening with us, it's 979-845-5689. You can also email me at gardensuccess, one word, gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. So two different ways to get a hold of us here. Boy, we've getting flooded with emails here, so I'm going to try to jump on in and talk about some of these emails that we have going. Uh, let's see, we had a, a question uh, come in from Shelby, and it's an oak tree, and lower limbs uh, just are, com- all the leaves are turning brown on the lower limbs, and the leaves remain green on, on the rest of the tree by and large, and it looks like a post oak uh, as I look at the, the foliage up close, as I can zoom in on that. Uh, you know, whenever you see a section of a tree where it, it just turns brown really suddenly and dies back, we look for a couple of things. Uh, I would look for uh, some splits in the bark as you go from branches that can that carry dead leaves to branches that have green leaves. Somewhere after those two branches come together, something is wrong. Maybe it is a, a split in the bark from coal damage. Uh, stress. Uh, it could be, and that could have been February 21 and um, December of this past uh, fall or early winter. It, it was just cold. It damaged a lot of plants and trees. And, you know, the damage may not be enough to kill them instantly, but uh, you watch them decline over a period of time and they're just not able to keep up with pumping water when it's that uh, blazing hot like we've had right here. That would be my guess. Uh, If there has been anything done to damage roots, such as a trench or uh, soil compaction from vehicle traffic, anything like that that damages roots could also cause the dieback. You just want to prune them back to where they join living tissues. And if you can wait and do that in the winter, that's fine. It's the best time to prune. But uh, you could also get by with a branch here and there now if you needed to get in and do that. The only other thing is if all of this were occurring on one side of the tree, I might look for things that are happening out from the trunk in that direction. Not 100%, but to, to some degree, the, the roots on one side of the tree feed the branches on that side of the tree. Now, sometimes a, a trunk will grow with a little bit of a twist to it, and so as you follow the vessels upward, uh, it may be that it's a little, it, it's not really the branches overhanging where the root problem was, but anyway, by and large, it's going to be similar. And that could be all kinds of things. One time I uh, went to a school, and they had this beautiful oak tree with one dead branch in it. And we got to looking around, and in the Asian jasmine under this, under this big spreading oak tree, there was a dead spot. Uh, hmm, that's interesting. On the same side, of course. So as I asked, I found out, well, they had a big ice cream party. And so when you make ice cream, you need lots and lots of salt to, to melt that ice and cause the temperature to drop. And so when they got through, they just dumped all that salt from the ice cream bucket uh, in a couple of spots on that side of the tree. And there you go, Colombo case solved. But it can be a lot of different things that do this. But that that I'm thinking toward a, a cold weather 
event, but it could be other things. Certainly, uh, tree problems don't occur uh, in isolation, so the tree could also have been stressed from a number of things, including heat and drought, uh, for example. So let's go. We're going to uh, head over and talk to Gary now on, on our email, that is. Uh, Gary sends a picture of a red oak that has some yellow veins. So if you look at this leaf, uh, it's a green leaf, but it's as if the veins, all the veins, the main ones especially, but even smaller ones turn yellow. And Gary, that's a sign, uh, kind of a classic sign, of some of our herbicide injuries. Not all herbicides do that sign, but something like atrazine, for example, as an ingredient, uh, could cause that kind of sign. Um, so and looking at it, it seems like the damage is not severe enough to, to kill the tree. Uh, it'll certainly set it back, but there's no fixing it now. Uh, just wait it out. Those products don't last forever. And as they break down, the tree should be able to grow on normally. Hopefully the initial damage wasn't uh, too severe. I don't know anything else that causes that symptom. Uh, there may be, uh, but not to my knowledge. I can't think of a, a good cause for that, especially to show up on a tree that otherwise is, is doing really well. Well, our phone number, 979-845-5689, or if you want to reach me by email, it's gardensuccess at tamu dot edu, gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. What's happening around town right now? we got a number of things happening. The uh, Rio Brazos Audubon Society will hold their monthly Birding 101 Bird Walk on Saturday, July 1st. This event's a chance for new birders to sharpen their birding skills and learn the basics of identifying birds, you know, by sight, but also by sound. They're going to walk through Lick Creek Park, and if you got some binoculars, bring them with you because they'll help point out, hear that song or see that bird. This is what it is, and kind of become familiar with it, a little bit of a learning uh, romp out through the, the trails of Lick Creek, which is worth worth a hike anyway. Beautiful out there. Uh, but anyway, the, the, uh, they're going to meet there at 7.30 a.m. again, Saturday, July 1st. Uh, and if you need a loaner binocular, they'll probably have some on hand as well. So I just want to point out that they are starting at 7.30, uh, and it is important for you to bring water, both of which related to hot weather. So we're going to get this done early before it just gets too hot to be pleasant and outdoors uh, in, the, in the weather uh, that we've been having. Well, let's see. I'm going to go down and do another email. Um, see, this one is from Jim and Kitty Anding. Uh, let's see in here. Okay, I'm going to jump over that one and come back to it a little bit. I had an email come in from, uh, let's see, Brian. And Brian sent a picture of an apple tree that leafs out a little late every year. And the branches have these growths on them. And, and what's happening there? First of all, the, the late leafing out. Uh, apple trees, peach trees, a lot of, lot of fruit trees uh, vary a lot in the amount of chilling they need to come back out again. And apples would be one where that's a species that normally grows further north than here. And so we sometimes are sold apple trees that would like to be a little further north. And so when they don't get their chilling, they don't leaf out well. 
And if they don't leaf, leaf out well, then it just sputters along. And if it's bad enough, the, the tree may really decline over time. Uh, but just being a little late, that's not unusual. Uh, that, that can happen. Now, the, the things along the branches, the swollen areas and things, those are cankers. And apples and many kinds of trees, shrubs, can get a canker. But uh, the apples seem to be especially prone to them, in my experience here. Uh, but there's not a spray for that. There's nothing to drench on the soil or do anything. You just got to, you know, kind of try to keep the tree in good vigor so it's able to callus around and, and close back over that dead cankered area in time, get any loose bark out of there. Uh, but that's just part of the the problem that we have here, one of the problems in, in dealing with uh, trying to grow apples. Let's go to the phones. The number is 845-5689. And we're going to talk to Elaine. Hello, Elaine. Hello. How can I help today? Uh, short of doing the back breaking work of digging them all up, is there any way I can get rid of uh, pokeweed in po my garden? Pokeweed. Um, what's it growing among? What are the good things around it? Uh, well, this year, nothing, because I have been trying to get control of the garden area, and <laughs> part of that involved getting the stuff out of there. Uh, we've had mushroom compost delivered twice uh so the ground is pretty fertile it's it's clay so okay we've had to uh, do a lot of that kind of stuff well uh short of digging them up you would be spraying them and you could spray them with a broadleaf weed control product there's a number of them out there that kill broadleaf weeds uh, there are products that are, that since the pokeweed has a little bit of a good storage under, underground of that weed, uh, you yeah. may want to use something that has triclopyr in it, T-R-I-C-L-O-P-Y-R. Uh, that would be sold as poison ivy killers, and there's many other names that they'll put on it, but that's the ingredient you're looking for. So either a glyphosate or a triclopyr, either one, would, would translocate down and, and do a pretty good job. Just be real careful. They drift onto something good, and they'll do the same thing to a plant you like. So, okay, I would not pump up the sprayer too much. You don't. The higher the pressure, the more you get a mist that drifts. Uh, so keep the pressure low, uh, and you don't have to drench the plant. Just get the leaves wet. Just, just okay. get the leaves wet. Yeah. All right. And uh, what is the effect of that chemical cyclosphere um, on? You know, because we're totally organic. Well, it's a, it's not an organic, that's for sure, and not an organic product. I guess if okay. you if you wanted to minimize use of either of those uh, herbicides, uh, probably I would use the triclopyr, and I would brush it onto the green stems of the plant. Okay. So rather than spray it everywhere, you're just using right. a foam brush or however you want to devise it to get the stems wet, or maybe you know dab it on some leaves. That way, it's only on the plant; it's not all over the place, like a spray would would do it. Okay, and would you repeat the name of that first product? Uh, well, the ingredient name is T-R-I-C-L-O-P-Y-R. It's very good against brushy, some of the persistent brushy types I'm of weeds. I'm sorry, I lost you. Okay, where, what was the last thing that you heard me say? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you because I cut out. Okay, I'm sorry. can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you now. <laughs> okay, I'm going to spell it T-R-I-C-L-O-P-Y-R. Okay, That's the ingredient. It. And just wherever you go shop, uh, you know, look for that as an ingredient, and it right. should do pretty good. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. All right. Awesome. 
they have to get out there in this heat and dig those things up. There you go. All right. Thank you very much Thank for the call. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Our phone number is 979-845-5689 or by email, gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. Had a question come from uh, Jim, and uh, the question is, is it better to use the seeds from uh, a berry fresh off the tree, like a, a, a mulberry, for example, or something along those lines, uh, or to gather seeds out of the little dried fruit that have fallen to the ground. Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, you just want to make sure that the fruit is fully ripe. And then if it's fully ripe, then the seeds are going to be developed, in the case of mulberries. And uh, you can just dry them and get, make sure and get all the water out. Maybe the ones that you pick off the plant are going to have more moisture content than something dried on the ground. But they all need to be fully dried before you put them into refrigerated storage or you can plant them. In the case of mulberries, again, I think you can plant those right away. I don't believe they require a cold chilling to the seed. Uh, I might have to look that one up to check for sure. Just lots of interesting uh, questions coming in by email. Another one uh, that came in, uh, Carlin has a number of different weeds that are growing in flower beds that are pretty pretty persistent. Uh, they vines that come up and just grow and grow. And as I'm looking at the pictures, it's kind of hard to tell, uh, especially as the picture gets further out, but it looks like more than one kind of vine that's growing in there. Uh, what I would do uh, is either follow them to where they come up and dig them up there, or if you want to spray a broadleaf weed control product would be the one to use. Just take extra care to not get it on desirable plants. I can't tell from the photo. You know, if there's any foliage of desirable plants nearby, but um, you may want to devise some kind of a spongy dabber to get to get a product on those leaves uh, that will kill the broadleaf weeds. And then I see a photo of a lot of nutsedge, and oh boy. Um, well, welcome to gardening. Nutsedge is a very persistent problem in beds. There are different products you can use. One is called Manage, I believe Manage is, yes, Manage. Uh, and uh, wherever you go shop for your your uh, supplies uh, look for something that like like manage or the equivalent of it uh, for nuts edge in a landscape bed be ready to treat and then retreat and then retreat it don't whenever it comes up and has three to five leaves you need to be getting a spray on it we say three to five because you want something you can spray if it's one one leaf coming up you're not going to get good uh you know contact and uh translocation down into the nutsedge plant. But if you leave it there long enough, it'll have eight daughter plants that'll all take off growing, and so it doesn't help if you kill the mother plant. Well, it doesn't help much. So anyway, that that's what I would do, Carlin, on those. Lots of uh, lots of people concerned about the heat that we're going through right now, and that I would be one of the people concerned about the heat uh, that we're going through right now. Uh, the bottom line is, you know, we can't control the weather, but uh, we can make sure our plants have adequate moisture. The The key, though, is to know what the word adequate means. And that means that the soil is very is nice and moist, but not soggy wet. So if it's dry, the plants can't get moisture. And in 100 degrees, they are pumping moisture as fast as they can pump it to cool the plant off, among other things. So when it's that hot, what do you do? Well, a lot of people get out there and feel like they need to put more water on. And... Uh, they water and water, and especially a new plant that was dug and uh, planted in a hole that maybe it was a clay hole, and when you keep it wet, it's an underground bathtub. 
and you get uh, anaerobic decomposition of all that organic matter. Uh, it just, the roots have to have oxygen. They can't take it and they die. And I would say that overwatering is a much bigger problem in the summer than it is in other times of the year. Uh, and it's just because the demands on the plant are so high. And if you kill roots or if you shut roots down, they can't take up water and nutrients. And so when you combine that, which usually also includes root death with 100 degrees demanding a lot of moisture out of that plant uh, for it to stay cool, then th those two, um, they go together with a perfect storm of plant death. So that, that happens pretty quick. So just be careful when you're watering. Uh, try to keep it moist. Uh, try not to uh, overdo it. That's one reason why I generally say if you're going to plant, do it in the fall or the winter or even early spring. Uh, that's the best times to do that. You can plant during the summer, but it is touch and go. I mean, you can keep a plant alive. You can plant any time of the year here, and you can keep a plant alive. But it is much more difficult with the touch and go of summer. I want to get enough water on, but not too much. Uh, and that's that's a little bit of a challenge. It's one of the things uh, that we have to deal with. Uh, Linda had a picture of some squash leaves, and the edges are curling under. Uh, and it, otherwise it's a fully formed leaf, but the edges are curling a little bit. That looks a little bit, Linda, like a hormone-type herbicide injury. So if anyone used something for broadleaf weeds in the lawn uh, or any other broadleaf product that may have drifted over there and just a very light dose got on the squash, or another way that happens is you have a pump-up sprayer, you're going through killing weeds in the yard, and then you wash it out, and then you put something you're going to put on your squash in it, and the residue of that herbicide is still there enough to cause damage, in many cases, very significant damage to the squash. It's always possible with this kind of a symptom that you might be dealing with a virus or with some other kind of issue like that. Uh, there are insects that when they feed, they can cause some deformation of, of growth as it, as it continues to come out. Uh, but I, if you can't identify any herbicide cause, then I would say uh, just wait and see. It's probably going to outgrow the problem. That, that's my best guess, and that is indeed what it is, is a guess. Okay. All right. Well, I think that covers most of the questions that we had come through. Uh, I just want to remind you that when it's this hot, you know, I mentioned we don't want to overwater. Uh, because that is death to plants. And it, it's hard. You know, people think it's hot, hot. I got to water, water, water. Well, you got to keep the soil moist, but you don't want to keep it soggy. So if you want more information on watering, like maybe your lawn, uh, if you go to bvwatersmart.tamu.edu. So think of it this way, Brazos Valley, bvwatersmart, all one word, .tamu.edu. You can go there and you can sign up. Now, this this is something that um, you can do in a lot of different places. This BV WaterSmart serves a number of communities around the state. And uh, when you go there and sign up, uh, you tell them things like, well, I have a pop-up sprinkler that's a solid set spray, or maybe I have a rotor 
type sprinkler that sends a stream that drifts back and forth across the yard. Or maybe I have a multi-stream rotor that looks like little fingers of water squirting out, drifting across the yard in the process. And you tell it what you have. And then it looks at the weather and it tells you what you need to do when you need to water. I, I do it. I get an email from them every week and it says, hey, uh, it's been dry enough and hot enough, you need to put an inch of water down, uh, for example. Or, it, nah, you really don't need to water yet. And it's all based on, on scientific studies that determined what, how much water does grass need. Uh, certainly, fuel crops use the same kind of thing. So, when you consider the solar radiation, the wind speed, the temperature, the humidity, those kinds of factors all affect how much water grass is using. And so it, there's nothing better than doing it through one of those uh, water-saving, uh, um, transpiration-based services like bvwatersmart.tamu.edu. I would encourage you to do that. Uh, let's see. We are going to now go to the phones and talk to Stacy. Hello, Stacy. Hi, Skip. Um, since we're talking about watering, I figured I'd get your opinion on this. Um, I planted quite a few new fruit trees this last, you know, early spring, right when they came out. Um, and I was wondering about getting, you know, they have those, either the bag that fits around the tree or the little donut at the bottom. And if that would be a good thing for watering, like versus having either hand water or try to throw a soaker hose around the base of the yeah. tree. This way I couldn't control how much water and I didn't know. Which one of those was preferred, if there was a preference between the donut ones and then the ones that kind of like go up the tree a little bit? You know, I've, I don't think it matters. If you're using one, they do allow the water to come out slowly over time, which allows it to soak in. That's the biggest challenge with sitting there with your hand on a hose is, you know, it just runs off before it soaks in. Uh, and so those would be a good idea. You could accomplish a similar thing by creating a berm of soil around the tree. Uh, think about how big the cylinder was when you pulled it out of the pot to put it in the ground. Uh, maybe make the berm twice that wide, and then you fill it up with water. I'm talking about a berm maybe four or five inches high. And you fill it up with water, and it all soaks straight down. Uh, and so that's another way to do it. Uh, but either way, gradually soaking the soil to keep it moist is a good idea. Okay. That was, like, my main question. Because, I mean, right now I'm just taking, a like, a 50-foot soaker and kind of halfway surrounding it a little bit and letting that run for a little bit for like three trees at a time but it's like i'm wondering if just doing those donuts might not be and plus that the donut ones might keep the grass down a little bit it's trying to get through the mulch spring <laughs> yeah yeah keeping that grass away is one of the most important things we do because otherwise the weed eater and the lawnmower can really damage the trunk i know i've tried to get that last grass blade <laughs> without hitting the trunk and oops well i have some of the but those those plastic collars okay. around the base, just in case I'm getting too close with the weed eater and I'm not thinking about what I'm doing. All right. Um, and then I have one other peach tree, and I've had this problem with another peach tree that died last year, but I'm now it's the second one, so I'm wondering if I have a problem where I see sap at the bottom coming out, and it's mm -hmm. like not doing that great. And it's okay. an established peach tree; it's not a new one, so I'm like, I'm not sure seeing that sap coming out as a like a bore or a disease or yeah. Well, that's a good question. Um, if, if it's coming off the base of the trunk, uh, just take a knife and scrape back the sap to look behind it. And do you just have discolored tissues like the bark tissues kind of died and turned brown as you scrape in a little bit? Or is there a tunnel? And if you see the tunnel, then you know it was the peach tree borer. 
there's two borers that attack peach trees. One is the peach tree borer that attacks the base of the trunk, the bottom, let's say, foot or so a trunk. And the other one is the lesser peach tree borer, which attacks the branches. Okay. Is there any treatment for that, or I'm just kind of stuck if I have the borer? There are some treatments. Um, you know, it's been a long time since I have looked into that. So let me let me... I need to check in to see what's recommended for those now. Um, basically, you're putting something pretty persistent on the trunk, so when the bug tries to chew in, he, uh, you know, encounters that barrier of pesticide. In the old days, before pesticides, people would take a soft wire type thing and push it into the hole to kill the larva back in there. Uh, I've never tried that, but <laughs> I guess that's one of the things you could do. Okay. Well, I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you for the call, Stacy. Take care. All right. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U, gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. I want to remind you that on Saturday, June 24th, at the John Ferry Garden, which is on FM 359 outside Hempstead, you can go online and hunt down the John Ferry Garden. It's simple. It's jfgarden.org. Uh, they are going to have uh, out at the gardens uh, the, the ability to kind of tour through at your leisure. This will be from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And there will be volunteers stationed around to answer your questions and things. The nursery will be open from 10 to 3 out there. And there's lots of, lots of nice things going on. So that's at the John Ferry Garden. Then, on Tuesday, the 27th of this month, the Brazos County Master Gardener Association with AgriLife Extension is having a uh, presentation for the public. Our uh, speaker is Bruce Dvorak from the Tamu School of Horticulture, and he'll speak on green roof structures and green and wall technology. You may have heard of green walls before, where plants are along, planted along a wall, and there's green roofs. I've uh, seen some really cool green roofs. Well, uh, Dr. Dvorak is going to be talking about that. So that would be on Tuesday, June 27th at the Extension Office, the AgriLife Extension Office, which is next to the County Tax Office on County Park Court in Bryan. No charge for that program. We hope you can join them and learn about that wonderful, cool new world that we're seeing now of green walls and green, green roofs. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. I was looking at the latest copy of Texas Gardener magazine. We had Jay on a while back from Texas Gardener. You know, that's the only, that is the only state, private, that's the only private state um, magazine on gardening that we know about. Now, there's some plant societies that may have a magazine for a region and things, but uh, Texas is fortunate to have Texas Gardener around because it's it's written by Texas gardeners for Texas gardeners. A number of people with AgriLife have worked to help provide articles for them in the past, including myself. Uh, in fact, I have an article in this issue that is uh, efficient lawn watering and it's watering based on evapotranspiration, which is what I was talking about a little bit more, or a little earlier. It talks about the watermyyard.org website and how to go about evaluating your system, uh, deciding when to water, how long to water, how to water, uh, just a lot of good technologies. You know, the, the, 
the nice thing about the watering and watering technology is they have developed so many ways to be precision with what we apply. Uh, instead of just, you know, flood irrigating, like a lot of crops still are, are flood irrigated, uh, we're able to precision apply that water right to the root systems of the plants uh, and not have as much waste uh, of water in the process. You can do that at your house. I encourage people to try drip irrigation. I have a number of drip systems at the house. They require a little bit of maintenance, but in general, they sure are nice. Uh, mine is set right now. I've got one on a hose-end uh, system. It's a drip irrigation, and it's got a little timer on it, and that timer is set to water uh, twice uh, during the week on the particular things I'm watering with it. I could set it to water twice in a day if I wanted, or three times in a day. It's just really kind of cool to be able to do that. It puts the water right where the plants need it on their root system, not, uh, you know, somewhere else. Uh, water conservation, when it is so blazing hot, is really important. Really important. And let me let me just explain some other reasons why water conservation is important. Every time you wet foliage, you increase the incidence or the potential incidence of disease problems. So uh, especially fungal diseases, but also bacterial, they uh, can they like to have moisture on the leaf in order to do what they do in attacking the plant. For in case of fungal spores, the the equivalent of germinate and send the equivalent of a root down into the plant and and cause the spots and the issues that we see. So we, we avoid wetting the foliage and minimize that problem. Another reason why it's important to not water so much is our water has a lot of sodium and bicarbonates in it. And I realize we have more than one watering system in the listening area, but still, by and large, lots of sodium and bicarbonates in the water. And so every time you water, you're applying those. And it is not the best thing for plants to do that over time. Uh, sodium destroys clay soil structure, causes it to be very dense, very tight, we say. It doesn't drain internally well. Uh, so if you want to build a farm pond, that'd be great clay to line the pond so that it holds water. If you're trying to have a yard or a garden, uh, you don't want that. You want it to have good structure and internal drainage. And so the more you water with city water, and I say city water, municipal water, I should say, but the more you water, it it's just going to continue to build up over time. And there's things we do to deal with it, but believe me, it's better to not have to, to deal with uh, anyway. Plus, there's the expense, of course, of water and then the, the demands on our watering systems uh, that sometimes, I know last summer, what was it, 100 degrees for 40-something days without a drop of rain? That kind of thing uh, puts a real strain on our water systems as well. Well, believe it or not, I'm still vegetable gardening out there. I finally dug up a few things that had been waiting on me to come get them. The peppers are producing really well now. Eggplants been producing really well. Tomatoes are still producing uh, that the uh, the fruit. They're not setting a lot of new fruit. Uh, the little dwarf uh, cherries and the dwarf grape types will set fruit fairly well when it's hot, but the big slicers don't like to do that. But there's still plenty of things we can do right now. If you haven't planted okra, you need to do that. In fact, I planted a bunch more just the past couple of days. Southern peas uh, can be planted in this heat. Sweet potato slips, if you can find them. Uh, and the cool season squashes. Oh, wait, wait a minute. I shouldn't say that. They call them winter squashes, but it's the storage squashes, the hard squashes. That would be like compare a, a uh, yellow crookneck squash to a pumpkin. The 
crookneck is a summer squash. It's ten, it's harvested immature, very tender skin. The pumpkin would be a winter squash. It's harvested at maturity when the skin is very tough. And those are the difference. But those take a long time. That would include butternut squash, uh, spaghetti squash, certainly pumpkins I just mentioned. Uh, there's some others. What am I forgetting? Uh, uh, Tatume squash would be another one, kabocha types of squash. Even acorn is a bit of a, uh, we pick it at a mature stage as well. Those can all be planted now, uh, and they will continue to carry you on through uh, into the cool season when you'll start to get the harvest from those. All our hot weather summer greens like purslane and, and others can still be planted now. Now we're going to get into another little planting window in July where we are planting things in mid to late July and maybe early August, depending on the crop, for the fall garden. Now, on the border between July and August is one heck of a time to, for anything to get planted out there. But uh, we have to do it so that it has time to grow and develop, and by the time the weather breaks and it can start setting fruit, uh, then we've got a decent-sized plant ready to go. So that's why we have to deal with that. Uh, I guess as we get a little closer to that, I'll talk more about protecting plants in the heat. Uh, that would include seedlings and include uh, transplants as well. We got a little quiet day on the phones here today. Our phone number is seven, or excuse me, nine seven nine eight four five five six eight nine. Or you can reach me by email at garden success at tamu dot edu garden success at tamu dot edu uh, getting some information from jennifer nations at city of college station water resource coordinator and they are still doing irrigation checkups and that would be within the college station water system uh, that's that's who uh, and, uh, has this uh, water resource coordinator position. And uh, so if you want to have somebody come by and do a checkup and see how things are going, uh, especially if you've had a really unexpectedly high water bill. Now, if everybody in town said, I want to check up today, well, that, that's not going to happen, of course. But if you had a high water bill and you go, what is wrong here? What's going on? Well, have them come out and take a look. Give Jennifer a call uh, or go online to cstx.gov slash water, cstx, College Station, Texas, dot gov slash water. Uh, because why continue to have high bills when it may be something, by and large, that could be fixed? Uh, that would be pretty important. Uh, don't forget, uh, you know, on the watering recommendations, uh, that at this point in time, I would say water one or two days a week. Now, believe it or not, I have a yard that I haven't watered this year at all, not once. And so as you develop a deeper-rooted grass plant, you don't have to water all the time. Now, I could see a little bit of stress the other day, and then it perked up in the evening. Uh, so I may be getting close to doing a watering over in that zone uh, that uh, was showing the stress. But the thing of watering every day, every other day, it's just not, absolutely not necessary. Not necessary. I would say two times a week would be the most you should have to water or something else needs to be fixed that's not happening. The irrigation system isn't putting it out at an adequate rate. It's not being run long enough or something uh, because once you soak the soil deeply, you should not have to water really for about a week. But I'll, I'll go with twice a week if uh, in, in some situations perhaps. I don't know if that, if that helps uh, or not. Uh, are you interested in growing herbs? 
I think that herbs are one of the easiest plants to grow, and it's a fun plant to grow. Uh, there are all kinds of herbs that do very, very well here. Uh, we have annual and perennial herbs. By the way, the annuals would be things like basil. They don't like wet weather or cold weather at all, uh, but they grow in the summer. And then we have perennials like rosemary, which is a very drought-tolerant herb. Uh, we also have thyme, and we have uh, marjoram or oregano. So lots of good options on herb growing. The nice thing about herb growing, well, not the nice thing, one of the nice things about herb growing is you can do it in a container. I mean, you can make a formal herb bed, you know, do that beautiful plantings, uh, you know, where you, everything is mirror imaged from one side to the other, and you've seen those kind of herb gardens. Or you can just put some herbs in a vegetable garden, or you can use them as, as plants and shrubs. Uh, and you can use them uh, as annuals along through a path. Some of them are actually very good. I like oregano as a ground cover, just crawling around underneath other plants. Uh, and then you get the oregano when you want it. So lots of good options there. Well, let's go to the phones. The number is 979-845-5689. And we're going to talk to John. Hello, John. Good afternoon. afternoon. I have a potato question. Okay. Uh, had a had a good uh long row of uh, potatoes plants and of course they've all uh, browned up and died and I started at one end digging them up and I had a, it's really a, a good crop, big red potatoes uh, my question is, do I need to just go ahead and dig them all up right now or can I just dig them up as I go along you know, John, I dug the last of mine about a week ago and I noticed that there, I was starting to get a little bit, you know, where you get some of those uh, issues of the skin of the potato. Uh, I'm starting to see a little more of that. And it's it's just so blazing hot out there that even being underground, it, it's kind of hot. And if we ever get, you know, a little too much rain, then the potatoes start to have those little swollen spots on them that begin to rot, the lenticels, the little little white raised things. And so I just feel like it's time to get them out. I let mine dry a little bit inside and then dusted them off, washed them off, and got them ready for storage. So uh, I, I would get them out. Okay. Well, that was my question. I, I, I will proceed then. Yeah, that and sounds good. What kind of potatoes did you grow this year? The red red potatoes. I, I don't okay. know what the name of them. It's just, you know, but they're, I've got some that are like, half as big as a russet. I mean, it's pretty, pretty good size. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like Pontiac a little bit there. I've, I've One of my last ones to pull out was Pontiac. So, G- good. They, they really look good and taste good, too. Yes, they do. Everything tastes good when you grow it yourself, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. There you go. Uh, okay. Well, well, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the call. Good luck with those potatoes. All right. Our phone number, 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Let's go to the phones again. We're going to talk to Beth. Hello, Beth. Hey, Skip. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I had a question about my Sasuma orange tree. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm new to that growing it. I think I've had it two years now, um, and it's producing fruit. And my question is, um, because some of the limbs are loaded with fruit, should I, and they're in clusters, should I pick them 
to where there's just one fruit on it. How, tell me again how long ago it was planted. Um, I probably had it two years now. Two years. Mm-hmm. I think you can probably... It's pro- pretty small. Yeah. I mean, I have a big container. It's, a, it's really a big container. Yeah. But, um, but it's still pretty. It's probably about three feet tall okay something like that yeah that is that is a little small side for two years i don't know it i mean you might pick some off and then just with the rest of them uh you know leave some for you to enjoy but in the meantime i think you're going to need to start uh pushing that with a little bit of fertilizer uh get you a good quality fertilizer or something slow release will be best but doesn't have to be uh and just small doses to if you don't use slow release just small doses to kind of Kick it into gear and get some growth out of it. Uh, if it's in a large container, you should have a bigger than three-foot plant, I think. So, okay. Uh, and the good thing about having a bigger plant is you can hang more uh, satsumas on it when it's time yeah. for harvest, right? So, yeah, that that's what I would do. I know it's hard to pull those fruit off, but that's kind of the trade-off. Because is, is it putting more energy into the fruit than into the growth of the tree? Is that yeah, you know, uh, we think of fertilizer as plant food, but what really fuels plant growth is sunlight and uh, carbon, um, uh, the nutrients that come up from the ground, but also the the uh, carbohydrates, that's what a word I couldn't say, that are made in the leaf with all the nutrients and things. And those carbohydrates are the, the fuel that drives everything. So for you to be able to set, to create a bloom bud, for to be able to set and ripen a fruit takes a lot of carbohydrates. And so that's why we, you know, we want to get as much vigor in the plant uh, and good green leaves, lots of foliage and so on. And I just, because of the heat, I mean, we've had intense heat, but I, and I just now moved it from the intense heat of the front yard into the backyard so it'd be not so intense. Is that all right? Yeah, it's a little easier on it. I would still make sure it gets at least six hours of sun if you can do that, and the morning sun's better than afternoon sun. But, you know, think about citrus. You know, it grows in the Valley of Texas and in Florida where it is yeah. just blazing hot, and so... Uh, it can take a lot of heat. Uh, of course, yours is in a container, which, yeah. you know, that's kind of limiting that particular plant. So well, giving it a little break in the late day is fine, but mainly just watering it, making sure you keep it watered. Would you put it in the ground at some time? You could with the Satsuma. Uh, once a tree is established, maybe has three years in the ground, now going from this container to the ground, you know, you kind of start over almost on the three years. But once it's established and you've got a good-sized tree, Satsumas mm-hmm. can take it down in the mid to low 20s, uh, so okay. somewhere in that range. Uh, I don't want to offer any more, but I've seen them go a little below that uh, if everything is right. So here you throw a cover over them maybe once a winter. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. All right, Beth. Thank you for the call. Thank you. Bye. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, 979-845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu 
edu. Uh, there, uh, we were talking about herbs and things. Uh, herbs can can be grown very well in containers. Uh, that is a, a really good way to to grow herbs if you don't have big space for an herb garden. I guess the way I look at it is, you know, how many herbs do you really eat? Like, how much rosemary do you really need in a year to 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 be able to do whatever you do season wise? Right. Uh, well, that's not much. I mean, it really isn't. And so, like one. Uh, rosemary bush could keep a bunch of families in rosemary uh, unless, I mean, you were just making Italian dishes every day for the, to feed the army, you know. Uh, but seriously, it doesn't take that much. The same is true with oregano and chives and other things. And so you don't have to have a big giant herb garden if your goal is culinary improvements. And so uh, with culinary improvements, then I'll, I have a some chives in a raised bed that's growing some other things. I've got rosemary in a pot that's uh, uh, kind of cascading down over the sides. It's a trailing type of rosemary. Uh, so lots of lots of options there. Let's go back to the phones, and we're this time going to talk to John. Hello, John. Hey, Skip. I've got a couple of questions. One, uh, I have some palm trees that I planted, got it, got them from seed, and they're actually growing good. Uh, a couple of them are probably about 15 uh, to 20 foot tall. And uh, But anyway, so uh, usually any of the uh, fronds or the leaves or whatever you want to call it, the limbs that are that die back, I cut them back to the to just almost to the base. Right. Uh, um, and that's usually, I just usually wait till fall. But I've got some on one of the trees that is, uh, uh, has two or three dead fronds now. Well, they're a little bit green toward the base of the trunk. Could I cut them off now? Yes. Actually, it's happening. Yeah. What's happening is it, it makes it easier to mow. <laughs> yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, when, when you look at a palm tree from the side, imagine right. it's a big clock from one all the way back up to 12 at the top, six at the bottom. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. When you do a palm pruning, you should be everything from 3 o'clock around to 9 o'clock, you should take off. Everything hanging down below horizontal, or especially anything that's looking dead, you would take off. But you don't want to go any higher than that. Maybe 10 to 2 p.m., or, you know, yeah. a.m., p.m. Uh, th that is a little more of a V-shaped. Uh, right, right. But, but in general... People sometimes over prune and they're left with just a few fronds sticking up. And this is a giant grass plant that has to have sunlight to make carbohydrates to support growth. So when you take the more the green leaf you take off, the more you're going to limit and set it back in terms of what it right. can accomplish. Well, I've always just waited till they till they died back and there's okay. some that are close to the ground. But I mean, if I didn't know you could, you, it was OK to cut the green ones back. I know I have. I've done that with with uh, uh, other trees, but yeah. uh, it, only in the spring or, or, or winter or something like that when I'm pruning them back. Right. Another other question I've got is, um, I have some cannas that are in uh, pots. Well, there were I had this past weekend they started looking so paltry, and it's because they, I think they were so uh, crowded because I hadn't done anything with them other than water them and keep them alive and, and bring them back to life in the in the spring after winter would freeze them back because the pots are too big to carry in. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they, they came back every year. Uh, but they started looking bad, and 
so I divided them up this past um, weekend. Uh, yeah, it was this past weekend, and they're actually looking pretty good. But I've got them mostly in the shade now. It's not uh, it's spackled shade. It's under under some um, uh, uh, like a chinaberry tree or in okay, a small and a small oak, and so. But it's mostly shade during the day. There's about two hours of sunlight uh, direct in the evening, right, just before sunset. But that's about it. Is that going to be okay? They're looking okay so far, but that's only been a week. Tell me, tell me again the plant specific plant. It's a canna. Canna. But I'm sorry. Is there? Do you have a variety on it, or just just I, I don't have a general can? Okay. All right. They, well, they, when they bloom, they're orange. <laughs> okay. Well. Um, so that uh you know the cannas will take some shade and uh, they're a pretty tough plant actually they they do better in drought yep. than you would expect they do better in a little shade than you would expect and uh they do better in standing water than you would have expected a plant to do so right. i'm i think they're if you're happy with them i think that's fine to leave them as they are you may see less bloom in the shade uh, if so if it's just green leaves then it's just going to be a green shrub if you happen to have one of the cannas that has purple or striped leaves that's nice too yeah you know it was it's they're they're in pots so uh i will move them out and i will try to get them in the ground at some point but um i just the reason i was wondering about that was because all these panels around that i've seen driven by whatever they were blooming like crazy now and, and they're looking good and i thought well something i'm doing something wrong here and i needed to divide them yeah so I did that and and i know it's probably not the right time of year but they're they're pretty, yeah they're they're pretty tough. Uh, just just a little fertilizer, a little water if you want to encourage them a little bit more. Uh, most okay. most people don't have to do much of that uh, because they're they are very willing to grow. Okay, well I appreciate your help. Thank All right, John. Hey, thanks. I appreciate the call. Let's go now. Yes, We're going to go now to uh, talk to Kate. Hello, Kate. Hello from College Station. Hi, Kate from College um. Station. <laughs> What do you do, or why would one apply Epsom salt to their soil? People put Epsom salt when you need magnesium. That's, and you have to have a test to determine that. You would need a you would need a test, or you know, I could I would if you have a plant and the foliage overall looks nice and green, but the oldest leaves, the center of the of the leaf has kind of a greenish Christmas tree shape in the center. The vein? The, the, the mid vein with the veins uh -huh. going out from it. They have that okay. that upside down V like a Christmas tree shape. Gotcha. Uh, it's gotcha. green and then in between the veins and further out toward the edges of the leaf it's not. It's yellowing. That's a magnesium deficiency sign on some of our most of our broadleaf plants that we have in the landscape. Uh, I still would have a soil test just to be sure because just adding nutrients when they don't need to be added can actually uh -huh. cause more harm than good. So that that is what I would do. But Epsom salts, you know, you could put a little Epsom salts in water, maybe a tablespoon and, and some water, uh, a couple of tablespoons, and, and then shake up a gallon and then just drench it around the plant and water it in real good and see if you see an improvement on that symptom. Okay. And if you do, well, that's a cue that, yeah, you needed Epsom salt. And there's better ways to, to apply uh, magnesium. Uh, they're, okay. They're, well, I don't see the symptoms. It's just that <laughs> I had to soak my dog in Epsom salt. 
Okay. And apparently, when you buy Epsom salt, the smallest bag is five pounds. Well, my dog's paw needed a couple of tablespoons. So I've got all this Epsom salt I don't know what to do with. I may just put it in hazardous waste, I guess. Well, I I wouldn't do that. I mean, (laughs) oh, boy. Um, So. Well, I don't. I don't know what to tell you to do with it. Somebody probably would want it, <laughs> one of your neighbors or something, because <laughs> people take nice Epsom salt baths after a long, yeah. hot, hard-working, sore muscle day, and there's a lot of. Good I guess for. that's why it's such a big amount. Yeah, that's a lot. You, okay, should, other you should be able to in the future. If anybody's listening to you, you should be able to go to a to a, a pharmacy and come up with a little less than that size. Uh, I don't know. I was shopping at supermarkets. Okay. Okay. What kind of varmint loves to eat basil leaves? I don't know. Uh, to be honest, I have never noticed a lot of foliage damage on basil I've grown. I've never thought I about this question. I didn't until this year. What does the What does the eating look like? If you were to get well, up close, describe if to me. I had, if I could catch the critter, I could be more knowledgeable. But it looks to me like big bites by a big mouth. But I can't tell if maybe it was three or four small nibbles that ended up in making, you know, a sizable crescent shape. But I have a oh, gorgeous okay. basil plant that the leaves are... Ooh, three and a half inches long and two inches wide. Lucky me. Okay, so and whatever it is, overnight will destroy four or five leaves. Okay, so when you look at the leaves, does it look like someone took a giant hole punch and made a, a circle two yes. thirds the size of a marble in the edge of the leaf? Yes. Okay, yeah, that's a bee. That's a bee. A bee. That's right, but it's a good bee. <laughs> I guess. Um, it, it's a leaf cutting bee and they cut those holes and they use those to line the nests. Uh, there are different kinds of bees that, that are beneficial that, you know, some some bore into wood uh, and they make their nests in, in wood boring like you just took a drill and drill straight into wood. Uh, there's all kinds of bees, but that that is a leaf cutting bee. It's a minor amount of pruning. The plant does just fine and there's no, there's no, um, practical way to control it you don't want to just kill all the bees because they're they're important for a lot of reasons well i think you're on to something because i'm growing status i'm sorry status and i was it's not like a swarm of bees but almost daily i see a bee or two on the salvia okay well that's a good thing Maybe you're right. Well, I just hate to lose my basil. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I have a huge, oh, I'm going to call it a mushroom. Um, I think they have a new name. What are these horizontal mushroom-looking things that grow out the trunk of a tree? Those are shelf fungi. Okay. They decompose I'm wondering what? if we got that from all the rain we had a month ago. Because it's right at the base of the tree. Okay, so fungi, they were typically the kind of fungi we're dealing with in our lawns and gardens that are creating mushrooms and things. They they are uh, growing their high, 
their little strands through the wood or through the mulch and your beds or wherever they're growing. And then when the weather, maybe we get a little change in the weather or something, they'll send up their fruiting structure, which can be a mushroom or a toadstool in the yard. It could be a shelf fungi coming out of the side of a tree trunk or a log in mm -hmm. the forest. And all they're doing is that their job is to turn wood back into soil. Now, they, they don't think that's their job. They think their job is to survive and, and uh, propagate the species. But from a gardener's standpoint, they do a good thing in that they decompose organic matter back into soil. So it doesn't mean my tree is unhealthy. It doesn't mean it's unhealthy. But if it's a living tree, it does mean that the interior wood has been compromised. And now you have a, I'm going to say, less strong spot in that trunk of the tree where it could snap off when you have a storm, depending on the degree of the of the problem. It could be just... So should thing. I remove this um, nope. shelf fungi? No, that won't do anything. That's just, that's like cutting the blooms off of a blooming tree. Uh, it doesn't hurt the tree at all to cut the blooms off. So, no, the... Removing the mushroom, the toadstool, the green shelf, or the shelf fungi, none of that is, is going to help. Bummer. Okay. I don't <laughs> want to lose the tree. Yeah, it's a growing tree. All right. Hey, Kate, I am out of time, but I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for calling. Appreciate it. All right. You take care. You've been listening to Garden Success, and we are going to be back again next Thursday from 12 to 1. In the meantime, you can listen to past shows by podcast. Just look for Garden Success Podcast uh, and tell your friends and neighbors about Garden Success. Looks like I got five seconds left. I'm just going to watch it count down. We're not supposed to have dead airspace in radio, right? <laughs> You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.